Uh, let me try to explain uh, what I'm doing a little bit. Um, for some of you, you know, what I do, at least maybe in the first 10 minutes today, is going to feel like backing and filling. But that's exactly what it is. One of the things I've realized, we've added so many new folks. And over the years, I tend to, um, you know, if I figure I've said it to you once, uh, you know, you probably tucked it away and put it in the linear thought and life's good. But then sometimes I realize, uh, you know, maybe that's not enough. I had an interview this week with a, somebody sent a kid to interview me about what you do in your first parish. And I said, the first thing you do is make a map uh, where you go from A to B and you get everybody to agree on A and everybody to agree on B. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes we need to do that a little more often here just to remind you what B is. Uh, you know, A is whatever, wherever we are right now, but B is what the Lord wants out of us. So I'm going to try to stick a little more to my outline today. You know, if this feels like a little bit of review, it, there's an important reason for it. I want everybody to agree on what B is. Okay, that's, that's where I'm going. So I'm trying to get, you know, we forget to do things. We forget to mention things. We forget to say things. We forget to emphasize things. There's this very... Uh, there's this line between I don't want to bore you with the same old stuff, but I also don't want to forget to tell you what's cooking. So um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna start you with Philippians 2:7. If you want to open uh, you want to open your scriptures to Philippians 2:7. I know we're doing James and Galatians. You probably don't need another book, but you should probably have a look at this, and it'll be immediately apparent why that is. Um, Philippians 2:7. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Two, seven. I often, uh, well, you might just consider the whole next 40 minutes or however long we have. I haven't even peeked at my watch. Actually, we did pretty well this morning. You might consider the next 40 minutes as an attitude adjustment. You'll just take it in that way. You just, just take the next 40 minutes as an attitude adjustment. Okay? So you know this great hymn, and it's probably a hymn that they sang in church. It's already been quoted in Philippians. Um, in fact, some of you, it probably the line probably breaks um, just after verse 4, where it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Okay, that's already the payoff. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Jesus Christ. And now the next bit seems to be a hymn that they sang already in the early church. So this is very, very near to Jesus when they're already singing this stuff. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so he's divine from forever, but he never insists on his rights. He never says to his father, I'm just as much God as you are. He never says that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of, and now, unfortunately, your Bible almost certainly polited this up. And almost everybody's Bible says servant at that point, right? But does anybody's Bible say something else? No, nobody's. But you know now, I mean, you're smart enough to know having been here, having taken the form of a slave. And now you see the first line from James, where James says, James, a slave. This just makes complete sense. I mean, the sermon was brilliant this morning. Even the prayer talked about what's imprinted on us as members of Christ's church. Christ, the slave, makes Slaves. We rarely, 
in our own lives, and therefore in our lives together, consider ourselves to be slaves of those around us, or even of the unbelievers out there yet to know Christ. And yet you know that the be, where we're going, is precisely what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28. Tell everybody, everywhere, everything, so they can treasure it up too. That's Matthew 28, 20. Tell everybody, everywhere, everything. So the moment you're a Christian, you're enslaved to Christ, your brothers and sisters in the congregation, and the rest of the world. I would just suggest to you that while Christ has that attitude, that Paul has to bid them, let this also be the attitude among us, that when he needs to bid them, it means that they have trouble remembering that attitudinal shift on a daily basis. And I would suggest to you that's why there's so much trouble in the church. On the other hand, the good news is that for people who can remember this, the Lord can make the most possible use out of them. Okay? If you can remember this simple thing, that you are by nature doulos. Here's a new one right there. Take two new ones. If you can remember by, yeah, see, that's perfect, that there's, there's two, two new sheets. If you can remember that you're by nature doulos, that you by nature are slave, then perhaps you can have a little more patience for the backing and filling so that we get everybody on the same page. So often complaints that arise in the church are simply because people don't know what they're doing here. I'm supposed to give four lectures in New York uh, to the Eastern District pastors in, somewhere in the spring uh, about what happens on Sunday morning. And I think I'm going to lead with, you know, this thing. Pastors have forgotten what it is they're meant to do on Sunday morning in the congregation. Your pastors have forgotten that. But I think people also have forgotten it. Now, the interesting thing is James very crisply reminds you in three words. James, slave. Actually, in two words. James, slave. Okay, so I just want to talk about what that would mean. Now, you know, I know that three weeks ago, some of you were um, a little nervous that we weren't doing enough Bible, we weren't going fast enough, and I'm sure that when some of you go home today, you'll say, well, he did one word, you know, so I'll be going too slow, so <clears throat> I'm just hopeful that you're averaging my grades and putting them on a curve, uh, you know, then everything will probably work out okay. So, so just take a look at this. This is Christ's bidding. This is number one. Uh, as you know from the last time, you know, I didn't even look at my outline, which is okay, because you can read the outline over dinner, but it's roughly the same thing. It's just that between when I write this on Wednesday and Thursday, or maybe Friday sometimes, and when I come on Sunday, I've completely rethought about it in a different way, but then you get it both ways. So I'll try to stick a little closer here, because I, I do want to make some progress. This is Christ's bidding, that we always be saying and doing what the bodily Jesus, the, the Jesus I'm talking about is the Philippians 2 Jesus, who was the second person in the Trinity who took his flesh from Mary. So here's your single task in life, that you're always found saying and doing what the bodily Jesus asks his body, big B, his congregation, his body on earth, to be saying and doing. So all I'm asking you to do is say what Jesus says and do what Jesus does, no more, no less. You do less, you're a sinner, you do more, you're a pietist. When Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't say, follow to the right or follow to the left or be more religious than I am or be less religious. He just says, follow me. So the point is that you're saying and doing exactly what Jesus is saying and doing, but beautifully, gracefully, joyfully, in the way of the gospel. It's not lockstep. It's not the law. 
It's, you know, come with me. This will be wonderful. This is the best possible life. This will take you back to Eden. So that everything he left behind is given out to everybody everywhere. There it is. Everything to everybody everywhere. That's the mission of the church. Everything to everybody everywhere all the time. That's the mission of the church. That's the only mission of the church. And you all get to play. You get to come along. And the only way you'll ever get this done is of what you say and what you do is within the universe of what Jesus says and what Jesus does. It's just as simple as that. So we've talked about this for a long time, but each time you try to think about something in a fresh way. Um, there were several fresh things in the sermon this morning. Uh, Jesus' imprint on you, which was then in the prayer, and then how you live that out in your own life sacrificially. That's a very interesting kind of talk. You maybe have never thought about that before. In the same way, you may have never thought that the fact that you're incorporated into the incarnation of Jesus and you participate in the incarnation of Jesus. If it is, it's as if, you're, it's as if you, know, you live within the body of Jesus, his flesh and blood body, and anything outside him until the second coming is sinful and anything inside him is holy. You've got free run of his body. You want to go to his earlobe, that's right. If you're a big toe kind of guy, no troubles. But don't go outside. Because once you go outside... It's dark and it's dangerous and it's really not good for you. As, as good as it might look some days, it's dark and it's dangerous and it's not good for you. So I tried to, in the first time, and I know you've seen this, but I tried to sort of give you some markers for what it looks like to be inside the body and outside the body so that you can sort of recognize when you or when others are in and out. For example, being comprised of what you love and not what you hate. Jesus is all about what he loves. He's not about what he hates. So the church is about what it loves, not about what it hates. Or that you play at the highest common denominator. Jesus is always about moving from milk to meat. Come on, let's go. Let's do better. Here we go. I can make better use of you. Come on now. Leave that behind. Let's go. We're moving on. It's over there. We're all together. To be static is to be dead, is to be anti-Christ. Because the world is always a change in place. And everybody everywhere is always moving all around. And so your saying and doing always have, always have to adapt to other people because remember, it's not about you, it's about other people. As soon as you're baptized, it's about everybody else but you. Jesus will take care of you, you take care of everybody else. That's what it means to be slave. To be slave is to have unsassing obedience. Or to put it positively, to have rejoicing obedience. Whatever Jesus says, you say it. Whatever he says do, you do it. If Jesus says come to church on Sunday, you come. Because that's what Jesus has bid you to do. It'll be good for you. If Jesus says, be generous, be generous. It'll be good for you. If Jesus says, tell the truth, tell the truth. It'll be good for you. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to love you. In fact, he's trying to love the whole world back to Eden. And you and the church get to play. This is a greatly, you're a privileged group. Okay? And I think sometimes we don't remember that. You know, we don't remember the church is always one generation from extinction. If you aren't busy saying and doing, the church goes away. Okay? It's extraordinarily important. So if you could um, get this right, and, you know, I give you just Irenaeus, who, you know, those folks lived through, if you died in 202, um, the world was a pretty rough place, especially for Christians. You know, it doesn't really loosen up for Christians till you know, 315, 320. It's a pretty tough first 300 years for Christians. Pretty tough. 
Nevertheless, Irenaeus, our service to God does not mean that we provide him with anything. He doesn't need anything. He gives life beyond death and eternal glory to those who follow and serve him. He does this for his slaves because they serve him. For his followers because they follow him. But he receives nothing in return. So, you know, we're going to talk a lot about good works, but you're not really adding anything to God. He doesn't need anything. The Psalms say, you know, he's got 10,000 cattle on 10,000 hills. He doesn't need one thing that you've got. But he, he takes what you've got because it'll be good for you. As Luther says, God doesn't need your good works, but your next-door neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. So that should free you from all your Lutheran worries about talking about good works. God doesn't need your good works, but your next-door neighbor does. But the world does. The world could use some improvement. And you can be part of that. The reason why God seeks the service of man is that good and merciful as he is, he wishes to bestow blessings on those who persevere in his servant. He wants to bless you. In saying what Jesus says and doing what Jesus does, you imitate the second person of the Trinity and you come into the divine life. You live in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in community. These little glimpses of beauty or... You know, these, these little kindnesses, or when the poor get fed, or when people are fair, or when they forgive you for being a jerk, that's a little glimpse of the community life in heaven. You get to be part of that. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. If you resist it, you know, speak against it, I mean, we'll try to help you, but honestly, you know, I can't say your prayers for you. I can't be generous for you. I can't kiss your wife for you. You've got to do all that yourself, okay? That's up, that's up to you to do it. You raise your kids. I'll raise my kids. But we'll do that together, saying and doing it the way Jesus says and does it. So all this and what I'm trying to do is break this notion. We started with the nervousness of how some people didn't even want James's book in the Bible, and, and, and people were nervous. Now, on the other hand, some people... David Scare, for example, will argue that James was the very first book of the New Testament, written before any of the Gospels, before Luke, before Matthew, written before 1 Thessalonians, which is usually regarded as Paul's first work. His suggestion is this is the closest representation you have to Jesus on a chronological basis. That's extraordinarily interesting if it's true. So you have somebody who ate at Jesus' table, and lived in Jesus' house, and shared Jesus' mommy, who tells you what it is to be a Christian. That, that's an extraordinary thing you've got in front of you. And you really <clears throat> need to tend it a bit better than Luther did, who was just so verklempt about it that he couldn't, he couldn't really see the good in it. So in some ways, it's sort of a rereading. So I'm at point number two. I just flipped the page. To do all this, it's best to know what you're talking about. And I've tried to give you, you know, in a couple of places, in a couple of venues, <clears throat> I've tried to give you kind of the difference between modernism and postmodernism. I know some of you have been perplexed, and I know that some of you have not seen the reason for that, but all the stuff about Gen Xers and Gen Yers and people in the workplace and how you manage young people and why they're slackers and why they can't think linearly, that's all just fluff. The real issue is the shift from the modern world to the postmodern world. And I can give it to you in two sentences. The modern world said for 300 years, we can think our way out of, out of all our problems. It's that simple. 
we can think our way. The intellect has the capacity to think our way out of problems. It's as simple as that. And after 300 years, people who are now called postmoderns, that just means they've given up on the modern project, have basically said that didn't work very well. And then modern people, old duffers like me and people older than me, anybody older than about 25, maybe 30, gets all huffy and says, what do you mean it didn't work? And then they just read the list, and I give it to you right here. Genocide, more genocide in the 20th century than any century before. Slavery, 27 million slaves in the world today. Okay? Kid slaves, sex slaves, tribal slaves, 27 million in the world today, more than ever before. Terrorism, world wars. Rarely has the world seen wars on the scale of world wars like one and two. Nuclear threat, never before was the world able to blow itself up. To exterminate human beings, that takes a lot of doing. It takes a lot of intellect. You have to think hard about how to do that. It's a very large problem. How could you kill every person in the world at once? Yeah, that thinking thing, that really worked out for us. Persecution, oppression, pollution, hurting souls, broken commitments, half the marriages end in divorce in America, ugly things, our lack of appreciation for beauty, hypocrisy, economic disparity, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. How many million people go to bed hungry in the United States and the world? How can anybody go to bed hungry in the United States? How can that be? Cynicism, people just give up. Deep despair, they curl up in a ball. Hungry folks, poor folks, dead folks, baldness, the common cold. Which, okay, that sounds like Jesus, right? Except for the baldness part and the common cold. I mean, Jesus was all over. All, man, you are tough today. Okay, so, <clears throat> I mean, Jesus is all over all of those things. So when somebody says to you, the world, what a tough place, what you should be saying to them as their servant, as their slave, as their hope, you learn to give them a little bit of Jesus. But Jesus knows about beauty. Jesus knows about consolation. You know what Jesus really knows about? Feeding the poor. Jesus was great at that. Hey, we got seven fish and a couple, two, two fish and five, we got just a, we got a couple of sack lunches. I just have everybody sit down. 5,000 people later, everybody's full. That's a very interesting um, miracle on a lot of different levels. So all I'm trying to suggest to you is if you know anybody under the age of 30 or especially under 25, if you're older, if you have children, or especially if you have grandchildren. This is very practical for you. You just got to pick this up or you won't be able to talk to them. They'll be on their cell phones in the car making fun of you 10 minutes after Thanksgiving dinner is over. I'm just telling you. You just, I mean, they're probably going to do that anyway. But uh, at least don't let them do it because of this, okay? If you want to talk to your kids, if you want to talk to kids, talk to them about beautiful things. They're all in the park, Adams Park. People who came to 6 o'clock service last night couldn't get a parking place. Why? Because all the beautiful things going to homecoming were getting their picture taken. They're all about beauty, or what they think might be beauty. Right? I mean, what is American television except making beautiful girls cry on a regular basis? Project Runway, America's Next Top Model. I mean, they have some sense of beauty, uh, some weird sense, right? So, you know, if you talk to people about justice, no peace, no justice, what else, what else is the world? You know, what else is the discussion on whether we torture people or not? What else is that but a discussion of justice? 
What else is the discussion about poor getting poor and rich getting richer but discussion of justice? You're going to come down in all different places about that. I'm not sort of giving you, I'm not giving you the answers. That's for other smarter people to figure out. Theologians don't really have, you know, always the corner of the market. They think they do, but they're not, you know, they're not, believe me, Hank Paulson did not go to divinity school, okay? Uh, you get people who, you know, at least have some sense of what's going on. Um, community, beauty, but then look at these other ones. I'm at just the fourth point down. Authenticity, which for postmoderns mean stuff that's truer than us, or mystery, stuff that's deeper than us, or commitment, stuff that's stronger than us, or joy, stuff that's happier than us, or apocalyptic, just a fancy word for the end of the world, stuff that's bigger than us. See, when you, when you say no longer, I can't think myself out of problems, I can't, I can't actually get myself out of problems. You know, I've said this often to you. This is like going to the hospital uh, and you, you say to somebody who's sick, get better. If they could get better, they would get better. If you know people who are depressed and you say, snap out of it. If they could snap out of it, they would snap out of it. But they can be open to a word. So this, is, this is what our excitement is about. We have this great opportunity, a better opportunity than we've had in 300 years for the gospel to be heard. It's not that we're in love with the postmodern world. It's that the opportunity is so great. And all of you sitting here, if you can simply understand your status as slave, if you can simply understand your status as slave, the Lord might actually be able to do some good through you. And wouldn't that be great? Because then life for people would be more full and more satisfying, and they wouldn't go to bed hungry so much. And they'd be more forgiving, and life would be more beautiful. That's what you're meant for. And it's all jammed into one word, James, slave. If I could have one thing from you today, what I would want you to do is leave with the notion that you are slave. You're slave to Christ, and you're slave to everybody else in this congregation. Where slave doesn't mean doing what they tell you. It means doing what Jesus tells you. It means saying and doing what Jesus says and does. Now you all know, if you've even read eight verses into James, immediately there's going to be pushback. And it's going to be extraordinarily painful. And the more faithful you are to it, the more painful it's going to be. And there's going to be trouble for us because when we feel pain, we default to what is natural. And what is natural in us is original sin. And then we act just like the rest of the world. And we choose for power. And we choose for strength. And we choose for winning. And we don't choose for the little, the lost, the least, and the dead, which is what Jesus chooses for. So in some sense, this is memory work. It's always remembering and always acting and always saying that you're slave, slave to Christ, and you'll do and say. And if you're not, you know, James says very crisply, you're probably not a Christian. And now you've got to hear me about this. Everybody struggles with this. It's difficult. It's difficult to remember it. And when you remember it and do it and say it, it's difficult when people come at you. It's difficult. But by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 14, he basically says, if this doesn't look like you, you're probably not a Christian. Which is, a, which is not unlike Jesus who said, the, the, I think the most haunting words in the New Testament, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Okay. This is just... You know, but you should hear that as him welcoming you into his body. Come on, don't play out. That's not you out there. 
everything to everybody else all the time, saying and doing as I say and do. Scripture and prayer and the divine service and generosity and mercy and witness, which is the point where we're at now. Okay? You still okay? I'm just trying to tell you why I'm doing what I'm doing, why it's taken so long to get there. Because without that adjustment, without the adjustment that you understand that you're slave, the rest of what we do will not make sense. And what happens then is people plague Paul who says, yes, it's a word spoken to you and you're saved by a word spoken to you, against James who says, man, you are doing nothing. Are you sure you're in the church? You're whining about that. Are you sure you're in the church? You don't come to church all the time. Are you sure you're in the church? You don't give. Are you sure you're in the church? You haven't done an act of mercy in five years. Are you sure you're in the church? I mean, it's another way of being pastor. So what you've done by setting these two things next to each other, I mean, this is re it's a really interesting game. You have maybe the two earliest writers of the New Testament, both pastors to churches that are very young and inexperienced, both saying things about Jesus, and yet they look very different, and yet if you play with them, they turn out to be two sides of the same coin. That's where we're trying to get you to go. And that's what we want the norm to be. The norm should be that you live in the grace that Paul describes, and living in that grace means saying and doing what Jesus says, which is exactly what James is talking about. So we're trying to give you the full blast sides of, 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 both, of, of both of this, okay? And, you know, I've said this already. I'm kind of halfway down on number two. This is so good for us because this is our sweet spot. I mean, this, is, this could not be better. Yeah, there's criticisms to make of the postmodern world. Put that down for a little while and just engage them where they are because they are ready to go. The world is an open place to us. The world is very much right now the way it was in the early church. Christianity is no longer dominant. In America, in the world, Christianity is no, it's a force, but it's no longer dominant. All you have to do is read the papers to know that or compare the fervor of Muslims with the fervor of Christians. Christianity is no longer dominant. So the world no longer, you know, I, I worry that we don't have the ethos of slaves. You know, the world has no sense of this. You turn on the television, Christianity is about everything but being a slave. It's about prosperity, it's about money, it's about winning, it's about power. Okay, what does that mean? It means there's a lot of opportunity out there. I once, I once read an article long ago, far away, that said, anytime you see a leaky faucet, you should take your kid over and show it to him and say, see, it's still possible if you can make a million bucks. Nobody's invented a, flower, or a faucet yet that doesn't leak. It's all in how you see the world around you. So what I'm hoping that you'll see is, instead of despairing, the world's changing all around us and it's changing at a very fast rate. What I'm hoping that you'll see instead is the chance to do what Christ is, is doing. And I put in a little, little hit for the liturgy there, kind of toward the bottom where I say, one of the things that postmoderns are interested is in doing, not talking. Which is why when you come to the liturgy on Sunday, we don't explain it to you, we just do it. We always have this long discussion about whether we're gonna teach you whether we're going to talk about how to sing a new song during communion or whether we're just going to sing it. And we always talk about talking about it. But our default has been just to put it out there and let you sing. Because what people want is to do it. it. The time is over for talking about things. The time is now to do things. That's what James is talking about. That's what it means to be a slave. 
Jesus told the story in the gospel a few weeks ago. Two boys, one says, I'll go to work, he doesn't work. The other one says, I won't go, but he goes to work. The second one is a typical postmodern. He doesn't, his words and deeds don't match, and yet what he's most interested in is doing. Okay, so that's where we are. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah, he, had, he said that, that, you know, in us we're very democratic and we, we think about, we hear freedom as a, as a watchword and we hear slavery as a horrible word. And so it's just anytime we hear this notion that we should be enslaved, is, it, just, uh, it just runs against it. And of course, the United States is a product of modernism, right? The 1700s, the great, we're going to think our way out of things. It doesn't mean that thinking's bad. I'm not against thinking. I'm just, I'm, I'm, in fact, I think... You know, postmoderns could use a little more of it, but we can't, it doesn't get you all the way there. So, right, we have, to, we, have to, we, have to re, we have to recalibrate when we come into the church. And um, but it's just simply the admission that you can't work your life out. Jesus will do a better job with your life than you will. I often say when people have children who die, it's very difficult to have children who die. About the most comforting thing I can say to them is Jesus knows what to do with children. In fact, he, he, he can actually do a better job with your child than you can. It's very, I mean, it's very difficult, but it's the truth. Jesus will do a better job with your life than you will. That's what it means to confess and to be happy about it because you're right, we do rebel against masters. And you know what? American religion has not helped us with this, this notion of a private, personal faith that I make my decision and nobody will tell me what to do and all I need is a Bible and I can interpret for myself and I don't need any wise people. That George Orwell comment, the last one, where we think everybody before us was dumber than us and everybody coming forward will never be as bright as we are, right? I mean, that's who we are. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, in re real honestly, there's very few of you who are like that. Most of you have a mentor. Most of you work in businesses where they're mentoring programs. Many of you are coaches or teachers. What else is that but to enslave people in some, some sense? Your best men, the people you mentor, the, your best mentees, your best players, your best students are the ones that wholly imitate all that you tell them to do. And then they innovate, which is exactly what Jesus asked us to do. His saying and doing in new ways according to everybody everywhere all the time. Okay. And here's the thing. This is the sort of thing, I'll just be real honest with you, this is the sort of thing that can divide a church. Because if you all, you know, and there's not 150 of you here, probably 175, maybe something like that. If you all figure this out, there's still, you know, a couple thousand people in this congregation. So you all are running off in one direction, everybody else is wondering where the heck are you going? Because I thought it was all about me and making sure there's a place in the school for my kid, making sure I have a place to sit when I come on Sunday, making sure I have a place to park and making sure that I'm comfortable. I thought, that's why you wanted me. No, the reason, you know why I want you? I want you because I want you to get busy in the kingdom. It's not about you. It's never about you. The moment you're baptized, it's not about you. It's never about you. It's always about Christ and your neighbor. And if you grew up with a catechism, you knew that. And the only reason I spend so much time on this is I think we've kind of, if we haven't forgotten it, I haven't made it explicit. So I make it explicit today for what's going forward.
So this is three, picking up where we left off, okay. This is this very interesting time. We're, when we pick up James and Galatians, we're, we're between the time of Jesus and the New Testament. The New Testament is just starting to be written, right? Um, and one of the very interesting things, now Pastor Ganey went through a long thing about, he, he took you through last week, all those verses where Paul sort of says, this is the reason you should believe me. And now you compare that with James, <clears throat> who simply says, James, a slave, this is what the church looks like. It's completely clear that James, and you, can, you might be on one side or the other of what was, what was done last week, I think that's good for you because, uh, real honestly, um, I don't know where you are in that, and you can be on either side, and that's okay, but I'm always nervous when heretics and Protestants are lined up on the same side, okay? Because if everybody said she was ever virgin for, I don't know, 1,700 years, except heretics, I'm not saying she wasn't. I'm not saying that James isn't the uterine brother. I'm still kind of processing this, kind of thinking about it, looking at the Greek, and there's different ways it can come out. But here's the thing. You just want to be, you just want to be that, that's an exercise in thinking about, thinking more broadly than probably many of you have, have, have thought before, right? So one way or the other, whether, whether James came you know, from the womb of Mary or not, here's the important thing. That guy had status. He was called James the Righteous, Mid-second century, there's, a, there's, a, there, there's the first uh, hagiographer, guys who wrote about saints and who were around, talked, that, talked about James, wore the linens of a priest. He still went to the temple. He commanded great respect when he walked through the streets of Jerusalem. And he was, in fact, killed in a, very, in a way that was very similar to Jesus, which is they were in between Roman governors. Okay? One had left, a new one was coming. Before the new one got there... They put him on trial and killed him. And when the next governor came, he was so upset by that usurpation of his power, he deposed the high priest. Okay? James was a big deal. He sat at Jesus' table. He lived in Jesus' house. He had a resurrection appearance and came to faith. And everybody knew it was James the Righteous. And he had somehow, he had this combination, which you and I should have, of righteousness and humility, that when he spoke, people simply did what he said. Which gives additional weight then, by the time we get to the middle of chapter 2, where he says, if you're not doing this, you're not in the church. That should snap us away. Okay? Look how Paul, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'll give it to you. I'm just going there, John, I'm just going there, like I'm in the middle of page 12, and I'll give it to you, Okay? So here's, here's some pieces, okay? <clears throat> then Christ appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of me, and last of all, to, to, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. If you check that out later, if you scan that through, we're already in 1 Corinthians 15, that's a post-Easter appearance. And you remember that where, the way apostles were made was Jesus eyeballed to eyeball them. So when you turn on the TV today and you'll see Apostle Somebody, it doesn't bother me too much, you know, Apostle Somebody from preaching downtown, that's okay because they're on the TV and they're preaching and, you know, they'll probably do some good. But Apostle's a little bit of a stretch because it's a technical term for somebody who gets the 12 Apostles. Eyeball to eyeball, they were invited to be in, okay? And then later, Paul says... Um, so James is in first, okay? James is already there. And then Paul, you remember, falls off his horse. Who are you, Lord? And then he goes to study. Uh, he disappears for a while, but look what he says. 
But when I went, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord brother. So the one guy that Paul seeks out. See, for us, we always have, we're heirs of, of, of Luther, and, and Paul got more books in the New Testament, and we're all about forensic justification. All that is great. And then we read James, and we can hardly make sense of it. But here's the deal. When Paul wanted to witness, when he wanted to validate, when he wanted to be accepted, he went to James. He didn't go see anybody else. He tells himself, I went to see James. And that holds weight with the community. Oh, he went to see James. If James says it's okay, it must be okay. And Peter said, this is um, after, uh, you know, they've had some conflict in the early church, tell this to James and to the brothers. That is, make sure that you tell James. Let James know what's going on. Or the, after the first apostolic council, if you remember Acts 15, they get all the pastors together and they've got trouble about whether they're going to eat with Gentiles, whether they're going to circumcise people, and how are they going to proceed. And they all talk, <clears throat> and then James stands up after they finish speaking. Everybody had their say. James replied, brothers, listen to me. And James talks, boom. And what James says, that's what everybody does. Okay? I mean, this guy is juice. He is the guy. He's the guy that everybody's listening to. And then later, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars. Okay, you're going to name the big guns in the church? James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, which is they blessed us. So now he's got the seal of approval. Now Paul can go do some good work because James has given him a blessing. So all I'm trying to do here is show you that in the early church, in these early years, James had an extraordinarily elevated status, at least that of Paul. And we might do well um, if we do it the same. Now, um, I don't know if Pastor Ganning made this utterly clear last week, but there are some James possibilities. So James the Apostle, there was one son of Zebedee who was James, he probably didn't write this book because he was killed in 43 A.D. Um, it's already in Acts chapter 12. He's dead in Acts chapter 12. It says Herod killed him, took the chance to kill him. James the Apostle, the son of Alphaeus. You remember there are two Jameses who were apostles. He's one of the 12, but he didn't really, he wasn't a big deal in the early church. So that leaves um, James the righteous, brother of Christ, and then last week he had the whole thing about how to interpret him being a brother, Okay. Now, let's see, I'm, at the, I'm on what's on 13. <clears throat> Maybe go to the third point there. What James does is completely connected to the incarnate Christ. If you have to sum up what James is doing, this is what he's doing. He's, he's as a pastor, he's implying, he, sorry, as a pastor, He's applying the incarnate Christ to the needs of his new congregation who because of persecutions, Acts chapter 8, have been scattered in all directions. So think of it this way. In Jerusalem, uh, Jesus ascends. The church begins. It begins in houses. There were a lot of them because the houses were small and yet, and this is contrary to the way that Americans like to read this history, it doesn't mean that everybody was on their own in all these little houses. They were clearly, clearly under the authority 
the teaching authority and the moral authority of the disciples. So even though people were meeting in different places, you, you remember, it was a little bit of a scattered history. They're still going up to the temple until they get kicked out. Acts chapter 2 says they're all still meeting together, having things in common. But it's clear that they're being guided by pastors and especially by the apostles. They become a threat, um, especially to the, to the, to, to the Jews. The, the, the Romans don't figure out that the Christians are something other than sort of strange Jews until you know, the time of Nero or even a little later. They, I'm, I'm painting you sort of broad strokes here, but, you know, it's another, it's 50, 60 A.D. before they kind of figure out that they're going to pound the Christians as something other than the Jews. Okay, so they have this initial persecution. So you, so you have Jesus crucified, Jesus rises, Jesus appears to the disciples, Jesus ascends. The disciples start churches in Jerusalem. The churches flourish. They meet everywhere all over, different houses, they become a threat. Acts chapter 8, there's a persecution, and this brand new church gets scattered out into the world. And James, unlike Peter, who's exiled, Peter actually leaves Jerusalem, James stays in Jerusalem. And James writes his letter, and James tells them how to continue to be the church in the face of very difficult times. And now again, you can begin to see the parallels. It's very difficult to be a Christian, not in America right now, but I mean, there's been increased violence. Uh, you know, there are, if you just read the paper last week, uh, Hindus in, in India are slaughtering Christians, trying to drive them out. If you read about some of the Iraqi Christians who are left, they're being driven out by violence and murder and terrorism. They're being driven out of whole cities in Iraq. There are Christians in Iraq who are being were being expelled from their cities. I mean, their choice is, they said they used to just kidnap us and we'd have to pay back. We were poor, but we had our families intact. Now people are being murdered. I mean, people are, there are several places in the world where it's extraordinarily difficult to be a Christian. That's why we pray for every week. That's what this was like. And so I've kind of given you at the bottom of 14 kind of a rough outline of what happens. Um, you can sort of take a look at that. But I guess I'm all the way about to point seven, which is, you heard it in the, in the gospel for today. It was a very interesting, I'm gonna, I want to warn you about something, and I'd be willing to talk to anybody who wants to talk about this, but I, I, from all sides and from good folks, I just have heard lately, and I don't know, it must be, there must be, I don't know, this, this notion that, that perception is reality is an extraordinarily dangerous notion. I know it's useful for some things, um, for about when you're evaluating how people think and why they act. But you heard, um, you heard in the gospel for today how, how they say to Jesus, we come to you, and it's interesting, they say, they're trying to taunt him, but they say a true thing. They say, we know that you don't judge by perception. We know that you judge by reality. They say, we know you don't judge by appearances. We know you judge by what is true. Okay? We, we know that you don't judge by what seems. It's very, very dangerous um, to judge by what seems rather than what is. And so the devil, I give you the temptation of Jesus there, the devil comes to Jesus and says, ah, go. the devil comes to Jesus and says, look at this, isn't this great? Doesn't this seem great? And Jesus says to him, man, that's not real. If I fall down and worship you, the whole world comes apart. And so what happens with us is, 
that we too are always after what's real, what's true, okay? And we un ultimately have to realize there's no reality but Christ. The last thing I've written on the bottom, I guess I want to reemphasize this for you. If we live by our perceptions, or we live by our feelings, or we live by our thoughts, and they are unredeemed, what will happen to us is we will default to original sin, and we will look just like the world. Once you're baptized, it's meant to be completely different. You have a new reality. You've cast away your old perceptions. You've cast away your old truth. you cast away the old way to see. You're a slave now, saying and doing what Jesus tells you to say and do. And every thought, as the scriptures say, then become captive to Christ. And that's what we're aiming at, how we do that together. And it's a dangerous thing. It's dangerous because there's only 150 of you here here in this. And, you know, I don't know that you all agree with me. But this is Jesus. This is raw, pure, incarnate Jesus. These are the people. This is from a guy who shared a room with Jesus. They had bunk beds. Okay? This is as close as you can get. So we might need to think about what that means for our life together, especially when things get difficult, when there's the stress of moving to a new place, when the stock market is all screwed up and many of you have lost half of your retirement, when, you know, you have the stress and pull of kids going in different directions, when, you know, the world looks like it's a very dangerous place. The question is, can you still act like a Christian? Can you still say and do what Jesus says and does? It's very simple, but you have to remember that that's who you are. You're a slave. If you can take one thing away, that's it. It changes everything about how you see and live your life. Okay? I really meant to take questions. I promise I'll take them next week. I tell you what, if you have questions, a really helpful thing for me to do, and it maybe doesn't expose you in a big group, if you just sort of write them down and drop them off up here beforehand, I'll engage anything that sort of looks like it's related to what we're doing. Okay? But this is just so important to know where we're going. Next week, the first chapter of James. And what we're going to look at is how really difficult, painful things actually pass on to you benefits. Okay? It's, it's a very interesting thing. In the suffering is the payoff. That's where we're going next week. All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.